Hello and welcome to TopCast for a special, rather quick, off-the-cuff episode about a recent video I saw by Yaron Brook. It was a very short video and it's Yaron Brook essentially calling out Sam Harris about something or other. He's responding to a question he gets from his audience. And I just thought it was worth exploring this. You know, personally, if I need to know something about economics or financial matters, then I like to listen in to Yaron Brook. I think he's one of the clearest, most articulate voices on these particular topics anywhere at all. Sam Harris is someone who I tune into whenever there's some sort of religious violence. I like to hear his take on these things. He's extremely clear when it comes to some of the most important dangers of our time. So Sam Harris and Yaron Brook are two iconoclastic thinkers and podcasters existing in what might be broadly called the intellectual web space. I support both of them. I listen to both of them as regularly as I am able to amidst making my own content, which is usually so time consuming as to make this regularity and for listening to other people's podcasts less regular than I might otherwise prefer. So if one of my favorite podcasters calls out another one of my favorite podcasters, my ears tend to prick up. I don't always find this a great way of doing philosophy for what that's worth, but simultaneously I do kind of like watching reaction videos. So I thought I'd kind of make a reaction video it's not a video so much as just audio this time around, as people can see. Now, Sam did in fact, well, Sam has over the years made some remarks about Ayn Rand, objectivism and objectivists. And I think this might have been a really useful, more useful for Yaron's time to engage with. I think that could be more illuminating for the audience. In fact, I think an excellent guest for Sam on the Making Sense podcast would indeed be Yaron. But an issue which happens sometimes with objectivists is this close focus on the personal at times when it should be on the ideas. I think the ideas should be considered to be out there like a physical object to some extent, analysed like we would analyse a scientific theory. You know, when we talk about the content of general relativity, we don't think about what Einstein really meant by what he said about general relativity. We just talk about general relativity at least physicists engaged in discussions about trying to move the frontiers forward of general relativity do. We don't consult the original texts. And so if Sam says something about Ayn Rand objectivists, I think it's better if you just consult what Ayn Rand actually said herself rather than a summary of what she might have said. And similarly, trying to discuss what Sam Harris kind of might have meant rather than taking a quote of his and analysing it, I think would be much more useful. And I think both Sam and Yaron have made this error, this error of not taking a quote and dissecting the quote and usually a lengthy quote, just taking a quote out of context is not going to be useful at all, of course. So what I'm going to do today is after a lengthy breakdown of what I think the issue is, I'm going to come back and not merely quote Yaron, but have him speak in his own words and then dissect that, not sentence by sentence, but uh, dissect it, maybe paragraph by paragraph, something like that. So I'm not going to be saying what Yaron intended, I'm just going to listen to what Yaron said and say what I think about the content of what he's actually saying. So let's get to my lengthy introductory remarks, which are about computational universality 
and the human brain or the human mind, more importantly, this mind-body distinction, which is really the mind-brain distinction, has long plagued philosophers. It arises in part because our sense of self, which is to say consciousness, seems so obvious to us. The mind is, in a sense, the thing that is always there, and that thing of which we find it most difficult to conceive of possibly being in error about, namely that our own minds exist, or that we could possibly be mistaken about the contents or character of our own minds. And yet, simultaneously, we do not feel as if the mind is simply made of matter. It's just a part of our body. Apparently, there are some people that exist out there, I've heard there are some neuroscientists out there, who insist that the mind reduces to something like just the firing of synapses in the brain. But in truth, it's difficult to find actual examples of people like this out in the wild making this claim. You know, Sam Harris, for example, is a prominent neuroscientist who has written much on the topic and in many moods strongly hints that at least part of what passes for mind isn't really material. For example, whatever consciousness is, Sam, like many others, will also argue that consciousness is somehow prior to the mind. The mind, insofar as it consists of thoughts, ideas, and intentions, is not identical to consciousness. Those things, thoughts, ideas, and intentions, are merely the contents of consciousness. Consciousness is more like a stage. Sometimes there is nothing on it, sometimes there is, but it is not the same thing as the actors and the set pieces that appear on it. Mind can be empty even if it is conscious, and in those times we experience something like pure consciousness on this view. But as he often argues, anyone skilled enough to clean the stage of actors and set pieces will find that something unbidden generally makes an appearance on that stage. It is difficult not to be caught up with identifying oneself with thinking, the things on the stage. Maybe we are just the stage. Or maybe we are the actors and set pieces that appear there. Or maybe we're both. We know little about this, and language here is barely fit for purpose when considering the nature of consciousness itself. But there are some things we can say, even if we cannot say what consciousness is. There is an epistemological standard. Yes, admit to what we are ignorant of, but simultaneously take very seriously what we do know. In the Popperian sense, what we know is what we have a good explanation for and which could turn out to be false. But in the meantime, if and until it is shown to be false, we should take seriously what we know. So what do we know about this stuff called minds and bodies or minds and brains? The mind, whatever it turns out to be when we understand it better still, is something that the brain does. But can we be somewhat more precise than this? Well, we could entertain wild fantasies, as some people sometimes do, that the brain is just some kind of aerial or antenna which tunes into some universal mind and receives thoughts from elsewhere. There is no evidence of this. There is little to be gained by asserting this. It raises more problems than what it solves. For example, by what energy source, waves presumably, some kind of electromagnetic radiation, are those signals being sent and received? What is the frequency? If it's not photons, then what? Why does this signal not interfere with any other kind of material except human brains? What is the source of these thoughts if not our brains? How were they then generated? It's like a god of the gaps, this brain as antenna theory. It obscures more than it clarifies. Is there anything better that sounds scientific, that is scientific? 
Well, yes, and we are very familiar with it. The scientific idea is that the brain is made of matter. It is literally hardware, and the mind is software, a kind of program running on the brain. Now, immediately, many balk at the notion, many reject it outright. Naively, they might say, but my laptop cannot think, and my laptop is the sum of software running on hardware. Ergo, I'm not software running on hardware. But this would be just as if to say, my computer never runs simulations of galaxy collisions, so simulations of galaxy collisions are not possible even in principle. But just because one is not familiar with what is possible in principle, much less in practice, with a computer, is no refutation of the idea, it is indeed possible. And in terms of galaxy collisions on a computer, yes, they are run every day on many computers around the world. They are possible to do. Now, we should just pause here, by the way, and I'll come back to this. That's simulating two galaxies colliding in a computer and two galaxies out there in the universe actually colliding in space are two very different things. We have to return to this because although simulating some things in a computer is not the same as the thing itself, there are exceptions to this rule. For example, now just imagine finding the sum of a list of numbers on a piece of paper, so that's happening in physical reality, and then simulating that process in a computer using a spreadsheet. The outcomes of the addition are identical, and there's no sense in which the simulated thing and the so-called real physical thing are different. We might also consider the case of what might be called a recursive computer game or a game within a game. People might be familiar with Minecraft, which is an online game, which is a virtual world where people can build things, and people have built fully functioning computers within Minecraft, a fully functioning abstract computer in the purely online Minecraft world, which can simulate anything a normal computer can, including an online virtual Minecraft world. Playing a game of Minecraft on a computer in the game Minecraft is to play the actual game Minecraft. <laughs> they are one and the same. As I'll say, we'll come back to this later. The question that will become relevant to this discussion of the mind-body problem and the relevance of computation is, what is it that a computer can simulate? Can it simulate brains and minds? Well, let's take a step back. What is a computer and what is it capable of? Well, a computer is just a device that can compute. Okay, so that's circular. What does it mean to compute? Well, counting is a computation. You can use your fingers to count. One, two, three, four, you can do it yourself. The fingers are the computer, and counting is the computation. A computation is a process of taking an input and performing some operation and getting an output. Alan Turing, among others, the others include Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, and Alonzo Church, investigated computers and computing early on as a theory to see what was possible mathematically with these things called computers, especially universal computers. Now, from here on in, when I use the word computer, by the way, you should just assume that I mean universal computer. A universal computer is a computer that can do anything any other computer can do, which is approximately what anyone who has a computer sitting on their desk has these days. You've got approximately a universal computer. Whatever is made of matter can be simulated by a computer. There's a claim. That claim was originally made, as far as I know, by Turing. Let's just assume it's Turing. It's usually called Turing's conjecture, something like that. So Turing's conjecture, anything out there, any physical process, stuff made of matter can be simulated by a computer. One might well say, so much for conjectures. 
But it was no random conjecture. It was a conjecture with a practical purpose, like so many conjectures in science and mathematics, given the fact that there were indeed mathematical curiosities, for the most part, which were not computable. But the laws of physics, on the other hand, they consisted of mathematical relationships, analytic functions to be precise, that are all computable. So if matter physical stuff, is indeed governed by laws of physics, then it is more than reasonable to presume that anything made of matter will do things that can be simulated, computed by a computer. But actually, we can do one better than this. In about 1985, David Deutsch, using the laws of quantum theory, proved Turing's conjecture. And so now it's called in some circles not merely a conjecture, Turing's conjecture, but the Church-Turing-Deutsch principle. Deutsch's great insight was to recognize that computation requires a computer and a computer is made of matter. So computation is inherently a physical process, not a purely abstract one governed by any set of pure mathematical concepts you like. Whatever computers can do in our world is governed by laws of physics. For some of the history of this, Michael Nielsen's got an excellent article that I'll link to underneath this. And David himself also had some things to say about this and wrote some things about this in his talk, The Mathematician's Misconception, where he said that he basically proved the principle. Now, why would he say he's proved the principle? Well, what prove means here is, beginning with quantum theory, one can derive Turing's conjecture, Turing's principle. Sometimes other people, when they say stuff like, well, the principle needs to be proved, is I think they think that it must mean something like, show to be true, finally, once and for all. But that's an impossibly high standard for proof. Even Pythagoras' theorem cannot reach that. Pythagoras' theorem has been proved, but not proved true. If you assume that the axioms are true, and then of course the conclusion, namely Pythagoras' theorem, then turns out to be true on the condition that the axioms are true. But you can't prove the axioms is true. That's the whole point of them being axioms. They're sometimes simply called assumptions. So on the assumption that quantum theory is true, for now, it's our best working theory of physical reality. Given that assumption, given quantum theory, you can prove Turing's conjecture that any physical process can be simulated by a computer. Now, because one begins with the laws of quantum theory and one derives Turing's principle, that means that Turing's principle amounts to being a law of physics. Why? Because it has been derived from what we already know to be the laws of physics, the quantum laws of physics, the most fundamental of all the laws of physics. It's provably the case, or more succinctly, it is provably the case given quantum theory, that any physical system can be simulated by a computer. Now, that computer could be operating according to classical laws, by the way, but it could also be operating according to quantum physical laws, in which case we'd have a quantum computer and many such processes that the computer might be used to simulate could be simulated efficiently or timely or quickly, if you like. The problem with a classical computer is that if it tries to simulate a quantum system, like, say, the interaction between the electrons forming a bond and an oxygen molecule, the computer will be able to do that simulation, but only very slowly because it's not a quantum computer and it's trying to figure out all of these interactions in the quantum realm when it's only operating by classical principles. But a quantum computer could do something like that efficiently, we say. Whatever the case, we can show that all universal Turing computers can simulate all physical processes, anything. 
The movement and interaction of atoms, the mechanics of a piston in the engine of a car, the trajectory of a bullet as it leaves a rifle, the movement of planets in the solar system, galaxy collisions, anything at all made of matter. All one needs is a program to run, instructions for the computer. So if we want to simulate a bullet leaving a rifle and finding where it lands, we need a program, a bit of code, the software, which would describe things like, well, the mass of the bullet and density of the air, the acceleration due to gravity, the initial velocity of the bullet, and the program would also, of course, need to have encoded in it the relevant laws of motion. In this case, Newtonian physics would more than do the job. The computer could then render the path of the bullet on the screen and output the initial and final positions of the bullet and anything else along the way. Indeed, this is an example of just that kind of thing for anyone to play with. It's, it's at this website called FET, which is Physics Education Technology. So computers can simulate things out there in the physical world anything. All you need is to know how to code it. Computers can simulate anything made of matter, as I keep saying. But I left one thing off the list, didn't I? One important thing. Human brains. Computers can simulate human brains because they're made of matter. In principle, at least. It must be the case that a human brain and all its activity could be simulated by a computer in just the way a galaxy could be simulated in a computer. Because it's just, at root, atoms jiggling around. But that problem would be intractable, as we say. Needing to simulate the jiggle of every single atom in the brain? Ridiculous. Could there be a more efficient way? After all, to simulate bullets, we don't have to simulate the jiggling of all the atoms that make up the bullet. We just assume the bullet is a single, indivisible particle and get precisely the same answer as we get in real life were we to fire an actual bullet. Maybe we could just simulate all the neurons in a brain rather than all the atoms. That's certainly an improvement by many orders of magnitude of complexity. Again, it must be possible. Simulating anything made of matter is possible because the laws of physics say that it is, and it's provably the case. But here's the thing about the brain. It's not just like any other physical system, like bullets moving through the air. It is doing abstract things. It is thinking, it is guessing, it is calculating, observing and so on. It is taking in data, processing it, and then generating output. That already sounds rather like a computer, no? Well, that's because it is a computer. But not just any computer. It's not like your laptop. Your laptop cannot think creatively, but your brain can, your mind can. That's the difference. But it doesn't make it any less of a computer. It makes it more of a computer. A computer plus some stuff. It's rather like not all cars are equal. You can have a toy car, it's still a car, and then you can have a Tesla. You can have all these different kinds of cars. Some are qualitatively different to others. Some computers are qualitatively different to others. Some computers are single-use computers. Some computers are universal. In the future, we might have computers that are able to run human minds. Now, of course, we could, as I just said, in principle, just simulate all the atoms in a brain and so simulate a brain. And so whatever the brain was doing in reality, it would be able to do in the simulation. If the brain we simulated was thinking, then the thing in the simulation would be thinking too. If you do not think this is correct, then you have to explain why the laws of physics do not apply to human brains. There is something that the brain is doing that you must insist is not determined by the laws of physics. You are saying the brain is outside the laws of physics because we have already admitted there is a mathematical proof from the laws of quantum physics of the Turing conjecture which make it a principle that says anything that happens in physical reality can be simulated by a computer obeying those quantum laws of physics, which all computers are actually doing. There is no getting around this. What I am getting at 
is that all physical processes can be considered as a kind of computation. The initial conditions are like the input. The laws are like the program, and the output is the final state of the system. This is no accident, but a deep symmetry. Now, the lesson of that is not that the universe as a whole is some kind of computer or a simulation or anything like that. The lesson is that universal computers are capable within this universe of simulating those laws and with arbitrarily high accuracy, as we say. They're able to simulate any physical process. Now, the minor wrinkle here is, of course, that it could be the case that quantum theory is completely wrong. But we cannot proceed in our understandings of the world now by simply throwing up our hands and saying, well, this all might be completely wrong. It might be, but we want to understand the things now as best we can now. And to do that, we should take seriously our best explanations of the world now. And besides, if quantum theory turns out to be wrong entirely, well, okay, Let's deal with that then. But turning out wrong can also turn out wrong in a technical sense. It might not be utterly overturned, but simply subsumed into a deeper theory that includes it and, let's say, gravity together, in which case computation would be almost entirely unaffected, preserved in its present state, more or less, and is simply corrected by some amount of gravity when that's taken into account. So we possibly shouldn't need to presume that gravitational effects on quantum computers are going to substantially affect the argument about brains being a kind of computer at the more local level. They might, but this would be like saying that general relativity was going to utterly overturn what we understood the motion of cars on streets or basketballs on courts to be once we had that new theory of gravity overturning Newton's laws. The human brain must be able to be simulated in a computer because there is a law of physics that says this is possible in principle. Whether it is actually done in practice in the next few years or decades or centuries is an open question and is also beside the point. The principle itself means that whatever a brain can do, a computer can do because a computer can, in principle, do anything that any other physical system can do, including a brain. Denying this is just an appeal to the supernatural. Brains are physical. Now, no existing computer can do this because we do not have the program and we expect that the program won't require simulating individual atoms or even individual neurons. It will require, rather, the program that does what our minds do. The mind is the software running on the hardware of the brain. So we can just ignore the brain. We can skip straight to whatever it is the mind does. And what the mind does is, among other things, create knowledge. I say among other things because the defining characteristic of the human mind is its capacity to generate explanatory knowledge, or as some people like to say, to reason, but using reason for that purpose. Indeed, it is a universal explanation generator. See my other video called The Nexus for more on that. Now, just before I get to exploring what Yaron has said on all this, I should say that although I say and endorse the view that the laws of physics determine what the brain does, that's a form of determinism, this is utterly different 
And it does not mean I do not endorse free will. I do. And the reason is because determinism, something determining what happens next, is not the same as explaining what happens. So although the laws of physics mandate what happens in the brain, that's that's inescapable. The laws of physics mandate anything that happens anywhere in the physical universe. That doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to this particular question of what explains what's going on in the mind. Different, different question. So although the laws of physics determine what happens from brain state to brain state, they do not explain what happens in the mind. They cannot explain why one makes this choice as compared to that choice. Okay, putting that aside, just so we recognize that I am on side with both the determinists who think that everything is determined from one moment to the next according to the laws of physics, but also I'm on the side of people who believe in the reality of emergent phenomena. These two things can coexist and must coexist because we live in a universe where they do coexist. Okay, let's turn now to what Yaron had to say. Okay, so here's the video where it says, our brains are meat computers. Well, that's the claim that's being made of what Sam Harris said. The first thing I'd say is, is that a true picture of Sam Harris? Because if it's not, if it's been doctored in some way, I think that is unethical and it should be changed. I just never have seen Sam smile in that way. So anyway, let's um, have a look at what is said here. Sam Harris says our brains are just meat computers. This strikes me as crude, but is there truth to it? No, there isn't truth to it because... Okay, so immediately Ron says there's no truth to it. There is truth to it. There is truth to it. Because, as I've already explained, every single physical process can be considered as a computation of a kind. And what the brain does is take in inputs and then process those inputs and provide relevant outputs, whether the input is light and you process that and you realize there is an obstacle in your way and so the output is you moving your feet in a different direction to avoid the obstacle. Now, Yaron is absolutely hooked on this idea, as will become apparent, of a computer being a silicon thing. Now, if what Yaron is saying, to be as generous as possible, that a computer must be a silicon device, well, of course, the brain is not a silicon device, but that cannot be what Sam Harris said, if indeed he said anything like this at all. Let's assume that the claim is that he said it was a meat computer. A lot of people have said that the brain is some sort of wetware. Okay, It's a kind of computer that, that doesn't use silicon. It uses some other kind of hardware. It uses neurons as the computational thing. So to reject this computational universality is a big claim from Euron. Let's keep going. It conflates electronics, it conflates zero ones with biology. No, it doesn't conflate electronics with biology at all. There, there is no dispute here. Indeed, if we really wanted to get down to it, we could say that there is indeed electronics inside the brain. The neurons are electrical conduits. What do you think neurotransmitters are? It is, it is electrical crackles, as David Deutsch likes to say. So there really is a form of electronics going on there. And yes, computers use zeros and ones. There has to be some way that the brain processes information. And the information has to reduce to something. The idea is reduced to something, whether it's in a computer or in a brain. It's just that we're conscious of these thought processes. But at root, there must be some sort of processing going on. And I just don't think the two are the same. Now, 
I am not, you know, you can't reduce every biological phenomena to just zero ones. And, and if you did, you couldn't explain, never mind explain consciousness. You couldn't explain life. Now, you can't explain, but that are, they are two different claims about the world. You can't explain life. You can't, you can't explain much at all using nothing but the laws of physics. But the laws of physics are universal, apply everywhere and at all times. That does not mean you can explain why the Second World War happened, what the events in the Second World War were, or why the Second World War came to a conclusion. Despite the fact the laws of physics mandated everything that happened and governed everything that happened, it wasn't like anything supernatural was happening. Because those are your only two options. Either things are obeying the laws of physics, natural laws, or something violating natural laws is happening. And that didn't happen during the Second World War. So two things can be true simultaneously. Both. The laws of physics determine what happens from moment to moment, and the best explanation of what is happening is not the laws of physics. It's namely things at the higher emergent level. You can have both of them. You need to have both of them to have a coherent view of reality. And so too with what people do. The laws of physics mandate things, and not only do they mandate things, there is actually a specific law of physics in the form of this Turing Deutsch Church principle that says that every physical system that exists, including the human brains, including human brains, must be able to be simulated by a computer. You can explain, of course, you can't explain free will, but you can't explain life. Why are some things alive and other things not alive? Is it just the zero ones? Again, there are going to be open questions. Even if you say the laws of physics determine everything, that doesn't get you far. Okay, This is why I say that although I'm a determinist, it doesn't add anything to many of these discussions at all. It doesn't answer all of your questions. If you say the laws of physics mandate everything that happens from here on in, that, that explains very, very little except some fundamental interactions of, let's say, things moving under almost exclusively the the well the action of gravity or subatomic particles for for most other things that are more complex you need the higher more emergent explanation because the predictive deterministic view is not what you're after so too with trying to understand things like the origin of life free will consciousness, all of this sort of stuff. Although it must all be mandated by the laws of physics, it cannot violate the laws of physics. It does. It is not explained by. And so although we can say the human mind, the, the human brain is a computer operating according to the laws of physics, and that's true, and it is a computer, it doesn't explain the contents of the mind. It doesn't explain what thoughts you have from one moment to the next. So Sam Harris is not wrong He's just maybe putting the emphasis in a different place. There's something that happens when you combine certain chemicals, certain chemicals that, you know, have biological, that create, that when you combine them, create a biological thing. And that's different than just the electrons and the atoms moving around. Certain combination have emergent properties. It's not different to it's the same as, but you can describe these things in two different ways. 
So when a chemist is describing a chemical reaction, they could reduce things to what is happening at the level of the electrons. They could talk about the entire molecules, or indeed they could talk about solutions into flasks being mixed together. They are all different ways of understanding this thing, this thing called the chemical reaction. And so too with the action of what's going on with a human brain. You would be wrong in a sense to try and reduce what's going on in a brain to the jiggling of atoms, as I said earlier. You might even be wrong to explain it in terms of ones and zeros being processed by neurons. But it's not to say that those things are false. It is the jiggling of atoms. It is the processing of bits of information. But it's also at the level of ideas and thoughts running through the mind, being subjected to critical reasoning, creative conjecturing, all that sort of stuff is going on in the level at the level of the mind as well. It's not to say that any of them are false. It just depends on what level of analysis you want. And you can't... And the emergence is not an emergence of the zeros and ones, which is what a computer is. The emergence is an emergent from the interaction of biological components, of chemical interactions. And to boil that down to a computer that just is zero ones is, I think, a massive mistake and just and just wrong. But a computer can be talked about as not just zeros and ones. It doesn't have to be this simple fundamental object that Euron's talking about. After all, if you're watching something like a movie on your laptop, there's a sense in which it's nothing but zeros and ones being processed, leading to sound coming out of the speakers and pixels flicking on and off on the screen. There's a sense in which that's true, that's what the movie is. But it would be the wrong level of analysis to try and explain the story via that. But it's not to say that it's not a computation that's going on. It is a computation that's going on. The movie is a computation. If you're watching it on a computer, or even if you're watching it on a television screen, as well. But it doesn't mean that that's the only way to understand what's going on here. Even though it's a fundamental truth, a fundamental truth of the matter is when you watch a movie that you've downloaded from the internet on your computer, that's a computation. That's what's happening. Uh, the computer is still a computer, your laptop is still a laptop, and the movie is the output of the computation from the computer. So too with our minds. The output of a computation, the brain is a computer that is leading to the output, which is our thoughts and ideas and feelings and intentions and so on and so forth. The creativity and free will that Euron values so much, and which I would agree with him on. It's just that you don't have to say Sam Harris is completely wrong about this thing, that it's a meat computer. It is a meat computer, but it's not only that, okay? We're wrong to say that it's only that, and Sam, I think, would be the first to admit that it's not only that, there's more to it. You can appreciate these levels of emergence, as Euron is saying here. Just that I would say to Euron, you also have to appreciate the fundamental reductive vision as well. These things are both ways in which we come to have a complete understanding of reality. None of them should be privileged except given particular contexts. If you're trying to understand why someone makes this decision over that decision, trying to understand what's going on at the level of the atoms or the neurons, or the bits being processed inside of the brain, yeah, of course, that's going to be wrong. 
But <laughs> that's not to say that it's false. It's just that it won't give you the best explanation, the best explanation of what's going on. For that, you need to talk about the person's mind at the level of their ideas, the mistakes that they're making, the things they're getting correct, and so on and so forth. Their deployment of reason. And, and I, was, I was really interested in this one uh, scientist that I saw a lecture of his. And he is a, uh, he's just built a chemical computer. Uh, but his goal in life is to create life. And his approach to creating life is not to build a supercomputer. His approach to creating life is to try to figure out the, the chemistry of life, the chemical components, the chemical structure, the way to structure components in a way that, that generates life. And he wants to create life, but chemically. And I, and I, think, I think there's a massive mistake that goes on by, that Sam makes by, by thinking that everything is just is just zero ones and that there's no emergent phenomenon emergent that that are associated with the biology not just with the electrons moving around and i think our brain is filled with emergent properties and filled with complexity and and the things we don't understand we don't understand consciousness from the perspective of the causes of it we understand what it does but what generates it how it comes about, and the same with free will, how it comes about, what is it an emergent property of, other than to say it's an emergent property of a living being with a certain level of, like a human being. I agree with that. We, we don't understand free will. We don't understand consciousness. Some people reject one or both of these. It's bizarre. I endorse both of them. But also, we don't even understand how ideas are generated as well, which is, again, another separate issue. If you generate two ideas, choosing among them, I would say is free will. Being aware that you're having them at all, that would be consciousness. But the thing is, we don't understand how it is that we generate ideas. Hence what I said earlier in my introduction to this, that if we have an understanding of what this program is called the mind running on the brain, then we'll have a better understanding of how it is that ideas arise at the level of the mind, which is the level that we would talk about. We wouldn't be talking about the firing of particular neurons. I think that would be a mistake. After all, we could take the brain, whatever it is, simulate it in a computer, and there would not be neurons firing, presumably, because we'd be able to do do away with the neurons, replace them with something else, perhaps simulated transistors. Perhaps we could just do away with all of that and we have nothing but the code running in some abstract way to produce ideas. I happen to think that would be unethical and for the, re for the reasons that I explain elsewhere in my Nexus video, we probably shouldn't be simulating people, thinking people inside of laptop computers because, hey, you'd be a thinking person inside of a laptop computer and that would possibly not be a pleasant experience. Until we know whether or not it's going to be a pleasant experience or terrible suffering, we shouldn't do it. Um, not in reality anyway. We could do it uh, in theory in some way by talking about it, writing on pieces of paper. I don't know. So there's still a lot of science, still a lot of knowledge, primarily I think in biology, that we need to have in chemistry that we need to have before we can explain these things. So Sam House is full of it. I'm surprised that, um, yeah, Yaron says there we need to have more understanding in biology and, 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 and science and so on. I think following David Deutsch, it's not so much about science and biology to understand the mind and the brain and so on, what, what humans are doing that is unique, but Yaron would appreciate this. It's about philosophy. 
you need to understand the philosophical underpinnings of what it takes to create explanatory knowledge for a system to reason in the way that people do at their best. That's what's required. Not an understanding of more biology. I don't think that's going to help. More and more fine-grained, detailed understanding of the structure of the brain, neurons and so forth, or chemistry or anything like that. That's not going to help. What we need is a more abstract, philosophical understanding of how ideas are generated in the first place, which is really hard because presumably they can be that can be done independently of wet where meat brains. Presumably there can be artificial general intelligence, which won't have a brain of that kind at all. It will be instantiated in silicon or something like that of the future. So that's the way in which we'll have progress on these things. But at the moment, at the moment, the computer that we do have is indeed a meat computer. And I don't know what Sam actually said, but all I can say is that describing the brain as a meat computer is actually true. Not only is it partially true, it's as true a statement as one can make in science at the moment. And it's not to say it is the complete story. It's not to say it's a full explanation. It's merely a true description of what the brain is. It's a meat computer. Does that tell you everything? No. Does it tell you much at all? Hardly anything. Because, you know, to say that I've got a computer in my pocket doesn't really tell you anything about what program it's running, you know, how, how it's running, what it's running, how fast it's running, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But, but merely saying it's a computer is true. <laughs> it's true. It's true to say that my iPhone is a computer. It's true to say my MacBook is a computer. It's true to say my brain is a computer. I'm not demeaning it by saying that in any way shape or form because it's doing something that no other computer in the universe apart from all those computers that exist inside the skulls of my fellow human beings is doing namely creating knowledge okay which is completely different to every other computer and that's the great mystery it doesn't demean it by saying it's a computer by taking the existent state of knowledge and thinking that it's it we're done and the only possible, therefore, explanation of consciousness is what I know, which is just zero ones. No. So I, I, I agree that we don't take the state of knowledge right now and regard it as final. I'm the first one to say that. But we have to take our best ideas seriously. And so I don't know what the ultimate constituents of matter are. I don't. But I know that the standard model provides us our best explanation right now at this time we say the electron is fundamental we say the quarks are fundamental we say the photons are fundamental but that's not to say that we just give up and say well we're never going to learn anything further but i can explain whatever anything is made of in my room right now i can see the light coming from the ceiling lights they're the photons um, i can see the desk i can say it's made of atoms and i can go into detail about how the quarks and the electrons work there i'm not giving up but just because I say that the human brain is a meat computer doesn't mean I'm giving up. It just means I'm using the best theory I have right now. And until someone comes along with a better idea, and I haven't heard one, except for these weird, supernatural, crazy ideas about the brain as an antenna or the brain as tapping into cosmic consciousness or something like that, or the brain as panpsychic or whatever, pick your weird theory. Or, or, on the other hand, saying we don't know anything and we can't make any claims whatsoever. I think all of that is wrong. What we should do is to take seriously our best ideas at the moment. And our best idea at the moment is following the church turing deutsch principle all physical processes are computable 
What the brain is doing is a physical process. It is computing stuff. It's taking inputs. It's processing it. It's giving us outputs. But beyond that, we can't say much more. But it's not a vacuous statement. It's not a fully explanatory statement, but nor is it vacuous. And it is not false. <sighs> Thank you, everyone. And I hope everyone enjoyed that. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>